checkout stand, all the magazines that line the checkout stand that you can't get out, you know, without looking at celebrities' pictures are on all the front of them, right? Who are the most highly paid people in our economy? As a group, entertainers, celebrities. And who drives advertising and marketing, the, all the forces that try to influence about all kind of stuff, sell us stuff we don't need? Celebrities, right? I mean, have you all seen those commercials with um, George Clooney for Expresso? Have you seen those? So you know how much he's getting paid for those? $40 million. <laughs> Pepsi is paying Beyonce $50 million for her commercials. And Charlize Theron, you know, in those uh, Dior commercials where she's like this goddess coming out of the water and all that stuff. So she got 50, is getting $55 million. So we love celebrities, uh, and we live in a celebrity culture. I mean, that's just the culture we, we're in. Our fascination with celebrities is not really new, but, you know, with technology, with social media, it has kind of gone to a whole, blown up to a whole new level. Uh, social media has made it possible for us to pay attention to what other people say and do at whole new levels, right? Uh, previous generations never dreamed of being able to pay attention to what somebody on the other side of the world or other side of the uh, country is doing and saying on a minute-by-minute on a minute basis. And it, of course, has created opportunity for uh, us to be heard and to influence people, influence large numbers of people like we never had before. So now people who wouldn't otherwise garner widespread influence have this platform, right, to voice their opinions, whether their opinions are informed ones or not, but they get to voice their opinions. Um, long, what goes along with this culture is we start to measure success. One way to measure success is by how many likes we get on a post, right, or how many followers we have. I mean, here we are talking about numbers of followers. I mean, one third of the country is following Katy Perry. Think about that. Of 300 million people in the country, one out of three people is following Katy Perry. It's amazing. Um, so this isn't, isn't necessarily a problem, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be a problem, except in as much as we need to be aware of who we're listening to and to be a bit discerning on what we hear, right? So I would submit to you, just for you to think about, that the longer you think about it, the question of who do you follow it becomes more, much more than just a casual question about social media, right? Okay, so the celebrity culture has been around for a long time, long enough that it pretty much affects all of our secular culture, right? Um, but what, if anything, does it actually have to do with our faith? Does it actually affect the way and influence the way Christians think or behave? Um, I would answer that probably more than we'd like to admit, right? So here's another quick example. So the, the magazine Christianity Today uh, published a poll recently of evangelical Christians. And in this poll, um, people were asked who they trusted the most and who they trusted the least, when coming to celebrity endorsements or uh, celebrity endorsement of candidates. Okay. So who do they trust to help them choose who to vote for? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's who uh, they asked. They asked, and here are the results of that. Okay. So I don't get bogged down in the names on the list because lots of names that there would generate lots of angst on all sides. Right. So that's not my point or the names on the list. The point is Christians are not immune to the celebrity culture, right? Um, I mean, just the fact that Christianity Today would take a poll about celebrity endorsements, I think, kind of makes that point. Okay, so we tend to listen to celebrities about what to buy, and now we tend to listen to celebrities about who to vote for. But still, does it actually influence the way Christians think and our values and our theology? Um, and again, I'm afraid the answer is probably more than we'd want to admit. 
this, I think the celebrity culture has affected the uh, influence of the American church in a bunch of ways. So, for example, um, you know, ways our ways of doing church generally in America are built around how dynamic the speaker is, the lead minister at a church, right? I mean, that kind of goes a long way in building this institution of this church. It's kind of the way things are built. Generates bigger buildings, bigger budgets. Um, there's a lot of thought that goes into how consumer-friendly a church is, right? So that's kind of the way things are done because of this culture in which we live. And because of this emphasis on, emphasis on personality, and kind of, of course along with the technology like social media, we now have celebrity pastors and celebrity ministry leaders who have platforms and influence way beyond their local faith community, right? Now, there's an upside to that. There's not, that's not all bad. Um, it allows us to hear from like our favorite Christian thinkers and theologians and authors all the time. That's not a bad thing. I mean, I take advantage of that. I read blogs and read the tweets of my favorite people, you know, that get their perspective on world events and what's going on and theological questions. So I think it has a bunch of potential for good. But I think we would be uh, remiss to not realize there are significant challenges that go along with this celebrity Christian culture as well. So let me just throw out a few for you to come be thinking about. So one challenge is that it tends to give this kind of pretty measure, a large measure of fame to certain individuals who who uh, communicate well on social media or are kind of media savvy, right? So what does fame do? Fame tends to put people up on a pedestal, and we uh, their egos are fed in ways that aren't particularly healthy for them or for us as their followers, you know. And we tend to think we know those people because we look at their faces on our phone or on their blog, and we read their stuff or their tweets every day, and we think, oh, yeah, I kind of know this person. I'm, but we're not actually in relationship with the people online, right? I mean, these are uh, there's a gulf between us that isn't completely um, uh, spanned. And I'll say more about that here in a second. Um, so these preachers and leaders have may have thousands of followers, you know, on their Twitter or on their blogs. But because they're so popular, they often actually lack um, accountability from a local faith community, right? You can see how that could happen. Um, have you all followed along at all with the, like the Willow Creek stuff that's at Willow Creek up in Chicago, the, the largest, if not one of the largest um, evangelical churches in the country, founded 40 years ago by the founding pastor, Bill Hibbles. And he's kind of been forced to resign here just like in the last couple of weeks because some charges came up against him and his elders came out. You know, first, they were kind of defensive, but then they came out after that and said, you know, we really haven't held him accountable because. That's kind of the way things go in those kind of scenarios. I mean, the same thing happened a couple of years ago um, in Seattle. Uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church, you know, he blew up this huge multi-site, uh, multi-campus church. And, you know, things kind of came out about him. He ends up resigning. And, of course, it kind of all falls apart because it's built around this personality. When leaders become so popular that they gain that kind of celebrity status, it's really difficult to hold them accountable because if the celebrity guy leaves, the institution that was built around him kind of craters. And that's exactly what happened at Mars Hill. Hopefully not the case at Willow Creek, but, you know, those those stories are not um, not uncommon. Um, the celebrity culture also has a tendency to foster competition among leaders for influence and power. You know, and power like fame is very seductive. It's very addictive. Um, it takes good motives and kind of leads them in unintended directions all too often. Uh, in a, there was a recent article that uh, former Christianity Today, Christianity Today editor Andy Couch wrote about that thing. And he warns about power. He says, 
Power puts distance from accountability, distance from consequences, distance from the pain we cause others, and distance from self-knowledge. He says the lure of power is not new and it's not going away, but what is new is this phenomenon of celebrity. He says celebrity combines the old distance of power with what seems the exact opposite, extraordinary intimacy, or at least what feels like intimacy. Right. So, again, we may feel like we know these celebrity uh, leaders, but in reality, we don't have a relationship with them. There's a distance that technology does not bridge between us. And then finally, a third challenge I kind of thought about was, you know, a lot of the time, most of us tend to follow um, certain thinkers, leaders, authors without really hearing any opposing voices, any anything that brings us makes us think any other way. I mean, how many of us really, truly listen to an opposing voice with open minds? I mean, um, this is right up my I have a problem with this. Um, I mean, if you're a Fox News guy, you're not a CNN, MSNBC guy. Right. Or vice versa. If you're team John Piper, you're not team Pete Enns or vice versa. Right. I mean, that's the way it generally works. We find our favorites. And I listened intently to these guys, but not so much to these guys. So um, most of us know Rachel Held Evans, right? She's you know a Christian writer, blogger, author. Uh, she has admitted to like struggling with her own celebrity status, but she says something I think that uh, resonates with me. She has said, "I've noticed that there's a tendency within the culture to see Christian leaders as holy, as either wholly good and worth defending at every turn, or wholly evil and worth opposing at every turn." I'm guilty of, guilty of this myself. Tribal alliances built around shared theological distinctives. I've got this here. Tribal alliances built around shared theological distinctives have exacerbated the problem, and I often find myself succumbing to a team mentality where those who share my theological or political viewpoints always get the benefit of the doubt, while those who do not are demonized. I mean, that's me. <laughs> so she hits me on the head with that, that I, yeah, if. If somebody that I don't typically agree with says something that's right, I still will hardly acknowledge it and vice versa. So it's a, it is a problem. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's a long introduction to um, celebrity Christian culture, how it influences church and who do we follow. That's what we're going to kind of discuss. And I get y'all's thoughts. We're going to have a discussion about that here in a couple of minutes. But I want to go through a couple of things first. Um, you know, I'm thankful that at least we can look to the New Testament church as this perfect model that I grew up with, that we have a perfect model that we could look to because they didn't have this problem of following celebrity preachers, right? Well, obviously that's sarcasm. Obviously that's wrong. Um, if you followed um, the reading from 1 Corinthians 3 this morning, or text, um, I think you can see we actually need to look at the first century church because they had the same problems we do. These are not new problems. Maybe they're on steroids now with, with social media, but they had the same problems then too. So, um, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to be there for a couple of minutes. Um, that's kind of our text we're going to work through. So, as you're getting there, um, if you think about the whole letter, 1 Corinthians, the whole letter could be framed up around the theme of unity versus division. Okay? So, um, the thesis of the letter is probably found in chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, Now, I appeal to you, I appeal to you brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you... Be in agreement and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and purpose. So 
That's the theme really throughout the letter. Okay, You'll see that theme underneath all the problems that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, whether it's lawsuits in chapter 6 or idols in chapter 8 or the way they did the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 or their problems with spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Paul always brings it back to this unity, church unity and church fellowship problem. Okay, and that's the that's what's happening in all these these uh, these problems. So in today's text, um, the problem Paul addresses is the Corinthians, their desire, their affinity for following personalities. He sees these personality driven factions as one of the many reasons, but one of the main reasons for their divisions within the Corinthian church that is destroying the church there. So Paul starts off in the first few verses by saying, really, your core problem is you're not very spiritually mature. Okay, Um, it's their immaturity, he says, that's allowed them to fall into this trap of following personalities rather than the core gospel. And he's pretty direct with them. I mean, he calls them infants. He calls them spiritual infants who, by their jealousy and their bickering, show that they're not mature enough for solid spiritual food. Right now, that's a that's pretty um, Pretty hard on them. It's a pretty insulting thing to say to the Corinthians because they thought of themselves very highly. They thought of themselves as particularly wise, as particularly uh, knowledgeable, um, that they were particularly spirit filled. And so to say that you're, hey, you're not being led by the spirit, you're just infants, is a particularly insulting thing to say to them. And then down in verse four, um, he quotes the Corinthians as saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. Or more literally, it's I am of Paul, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos. And when he says that, I think Paul is recognizing that as political language, as like partisan language, something you would hear like in a our convention, our political, you know, Democrat or Republican conventions. You know, I'm a XYZ follower. And that probably the Corinthians are thinking of the church as some kind of political organization. Okay? Um, and if that were true, you know, in the context of the first century, that wouldn't be unusual. The um, it was very common for teachers and philosophers to, to gain following and for you to, to follow someone in that time frame. That was very common throughout antiquity. But Paul says, if he's direct, that's not the way the church is going to be. That's not the way the church is to be. It's a place where there is no place for competition or rivalry in the church. And then he goes on to criticize them for following himself or for Apollos. And he says, when you do that, you're just acting in human ways, which, again, goes back to that you're not acting spirit filled, which is kind of your what you're so you know, high on yourself about. You're not this, these spiritual people. I'm, you're, you're letting your humanness follow, uh, lead you. It's your spiritual immaturity that's the problem. Okay, so we know Paul, right? Everybody knows Paul. Who is Apollos? So Apollos is a Jew from Alexandria. Um, Alexandria is the second largest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome. It was founded by Alexander the Great, like 300 plus years before Paul's time. It was home to one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. And because of that, it was known as one of the leading educational and like literary centers of all of Greek civilization. So it's this hub for literary and education. Um, in the ancient world, the art of public speaking, like the use of rhetoric, was like a big deal. That was very highly regarded. And Alexandria would have been like an epicenter for that kind of thing. So um, that's where Apollos comes from. Philosophers could be found on the street corners lecturing and using the rhetorical skills to persuade people to their way of thinking or persuade to get a following behind them. So that's Apollos' world that he comes from. So we learn in Acts 18, you, you know, there that tells, kind of tells the story of what's this time frame. So Luke says in Acts 18 that Apollos comes to Corinth after Paul has left. 
So Paul's been there like a year and a half, establishes the church, working, building relationships with them. He leaves, goes on his way, I think, to Ephesus, if I remember correctly. Um, and Paul, Apollos comes in behind him. And Acts says that Apollos spoke with great fervor, that he taught about Jesus accurately. And then when he got to Corinth, he was this great help to the believers because he vigorously refuted his opponents in public debate. Okay, so if you combine that description of what we know about Alexandria, this, um, he was probably this great orator, you know, this great public speaker, probably very charismatic. And so it was very easy, I think, for the Corinthians to, for him to come in and to look up to him because he was great at helping them think through in, in public debate. In contrast... Paul, from, we know this from other parts of the Corinthian letters, that Paul was criticized for his lack of oratory skills, right? Paul does not have a very strong personal presence. Um, he's not very impressive in person, evidently. History will say that Paul was short. He was kind of stooped over and had a college professor at ACU. He used to say he had a big crooked nose. So I guess he was just not a very attractive person, according to history. So just not very impressive, right? Um, it seems as though the people in Corinth were drawn to Apollos over Paul because of style, right? Um, even though Paul had this credential of being an apostle, Apollos was commanded more social respect. And that's what the Corinthians kind of were after. Um, it's also possible that the, the individual house churches in Corinth were in rivalry with one another. So one house church was an Apollos house church and another house church was following Paul. You know, I'd be like, you know, if Richardson said, hey, I'm just going to only listen to Charles or Ryan or Genia said, no, I'm just going to, I'm not going to pay attention to those guys. It's just Paul or Ted who I'm going to follow, you know, <laughs> or we got in competition about, um, you know, oh, our ministry, our, um, you know, our work in the, in the neighborhoods more better than yours. So that's the kind of stuff that's going on. I mean, there's this conflict. They're arguing and bickering over those kinds of things. And from Paul's perspective, the problem isn't that he felt. You know, slighted or inferior to Apollos, I don't think. He makes the point that Apollos is not a competitor. He's a co-worker, right? I mean, he uses an agricultural metaphor in verse 6. And he says, I planted the seed. Apollos comes along and waters it. But it's God who made it grow. He's the only important one here is God. So Paul isn't, this isn't about Paul being jealous. Um, I think he'd be the first to admit that everyone in the mission, uh, in the everyone has a role in the mission of God, right? Um a few chapters later in chapter 12, when he starts talking about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ, I mean, I came back to this point. We all have our role. There's no use. No, don't even think about competing with one another. So his problem's not with Apollos. It's with the church and their immaturity and their desire for social respect. Um, he makes that point again by using another metaphor. He says he uses a building metaphor that says, I laid a foundation of Christ and someone else, Apollos, is building on it. Um, by using this image of Christ as the foundation, he's reminding them that there's no basis for the existence of the church other than Christ himself. And that just as the foundation of a building determines like the building's shape and its character and what it's like, Christ is the one who determines the shape and the nature and the character of the church. Paul says the result of this division in the church at Corinth, or um, as he puts it in verse 16, the temple of God... Um, is being destroyed. So look at verse 16 and 17. Um, can you get me there, Charles? 16, there may be... It's, it's not... Verse 16 and 17 is where we're going to be. Uh, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will, will destroy that person. 
For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Okay, so I don't read Greek. Um, if those of you who know whatever classes I've taken, I've worked really hard to never take Greek. And so I've accomplished that. So I don't read Greek, but people who read Greek will say that, that the word you, um, in that, uh, do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple? That word is plural, right? So what he's saying is, do you not know that y'all are God's temple? All right. So that's how we say it here. Right. Y'all are God's temple. Um, he's saying that it's the community of God's people is where God lives. The Holy Spirit lives in a community and that when there's division within the community, God's home, his dwelling place is destroyed. Uh, the Corinthians may have been confused um, that they thought of the church as a as a group of spirit filled individuals. Right. I mean, honestly, I have thought of the church that way in the past. That I have made that mistake. Um, I have consoled myself with the fact that I am a product of a highly Americanized church, highly Americanized Christianity that has emphasized personal salvation and individual responsibility over communal formation. But regardless, it's wrong. It's just the wrong way to envision the church. And Paul challenges that very strongly, that individualistic view of the church by saying the spirit lives in the church in its fullness, in its wholeness. So ultimately, Paul is saying that division is inconsistent with our identity as a community and that leaders, whether it be himself or whether it be Apollos, um, are meaningless. They're just servants. They are not celebrities to follow. Right. All right. So we're about to open it up and let's talk about this a little bit. We've got one more thing to do. I've got a four minute video from Verge Network that we're about to show. Um, So in this video, four missional church leaders, Joe Saxon, Alan Hirsch, Mike Green and Jeff Vanderstelt talk about the impact of Christian, the Christian celebrity culture on today's church. It's entitled How Celebrity Pastors Are Ruining the Church. <laughs> All right. So um, four minutes, then get your comments ready. We're going like to hear what you have, to, what you're thinking about all this. And I'll be back. In America, our respect for the kind of leaders we find here. The, the dark side of that is the celebrity mm-hmm. leader in this, who are these prima donnas uh, who, you know, who never get to meet ordinary people. They hang out in green rooms. The problem is, with, say, with the celebrity culture or whatever you want to talk about, yeah. you, know, you can get yeah. whatever celebrity you want. Yeah. But celebrity is different to what we're talking about. Absolutely. Because it actually sets up a false model and it's rewarding all the wrong behaviors. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think. I, I think people are wrong. Yes, call it power. We need to call it into account. It's, it's, it, you know, totally. it's, it's yeah. actually undermining our, our message. Absolutely. Our I ultimately want to see that stuff and say, well, yeah, well, that's what you guys are about. Thank you, no thanks. You know, why are you different from the world? There's no difference from Hollywood. And I think that we really do need to um, become human again and, and, and to own the fact that we are meant to live an authentic life in this way that, like, I see my faults as well as my virtues, lived out my struggles to follow Jesus in a faithful way. You know, uh, when we confess our this is about con- when we confess our our virtues, we competitors. When we confess our sins, we are brothers. Yeah. I think we need to learn how to confess our sins properly. I think you're right, and um, and I, I I feel for the, the the leaders who find themselves in the context where they've got lots of people looking to them for a, a word, um, and I think that we've got to find a way to help them 
be able to, to, to navigate a journey away from the celebrity culture yeah. so that they can become a movement leader where everybody's doing the same thing. Now, if, if we can do that, I think we've won a huge battle because I really think that the church in America is not going to get smaller in terms of its gathered expression. I think it's going to get bigger if anything. And so the, the, the realities that we're talking about here and the temptations that we're talking about here are not going to go away. Yeah, absolutely. Of anything. Yeah. And yeah. so I want to stand alongside those brothers and sisters and say, how can we navigate the journey away from this celebrity culture yeah. that is so gripped by demonic power, in my view? Yeah. We just need to help you get away from that. Yeah. Because I know you want to. Yeah. It's just how do you do it? Yeah. 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 Which is why I don't yeah. want to talk about individuals. No, I, I didn't want to. Yeah. I was going to name any names. I was just thinking. Yeah. But I think it's like, you know, it's, one, it's in Jesus' glory that belongs to him. Yeah. If we're taking that, it's a holy thing. And yeah. I think we need to be very, very careful. And then, and because people do see it, of course, and it does, it does set the wrong kind of But I, I, I think the, one of the ways that they may be able to combat it is to use whatever platform God's given them to promote something other than themselves. You know, so like, what does Jesus do? You know, he makes much of the things that aren't. He makes much of a widow who gives nothing, you know. He makes much of a little boy. Yeah, he, raises and, and he raises up those yeah. who would not be noticed. And yeah. So I think those platforms are very opportunity to say, let me tell you about this mom who's actually doing the very work we're yeah. talking about. I want to highlight her now in front of the whole yeah. world. Very very good. Honor the work of very everyday good. people. Thanks, Charles, for running it. Okay, so food for thought. What the uh, floor's open for comments for Kim. talked a little bit about gender and power on Ash Wednesday um, and um, so yeah I, I right through with you um, what else I don't think that you can be authentic as a leader um, spending 30 years in the church um, if you if you really 
share who you are and the struggles that you have, I'm going to get up to here. Get out. Get out. Because you're supposed to have it all together. Yeah. I remember asking Daryl in our first ministry, I remember crying and saying, I just want to be me. I want to be who I am. And I remember him saying, be who you are. And yet I also think of 30 years of ministry and as far as I think I think I ended up being who I was most of the time. <laughs> but for Daryl, I just feel like in so many other ministers, if you are authentic and you say, I have struggles and these are struggles that I have and stuff, well, we don't want you as a leader in this church. You need to get out because you're supposed to be an example. And yeah. you do get put on the pedestal whether you want to be there or not. And you better not fall off from it. Yeah. That was my experience in my previous church world, um, was that staff, minister, ministers on staff, did not feel comfortable coming to leadership, the other eldership. You know, there, there, that was a, it was a real problem, um, that there was not authenticity. There was not a, anyone they could go to. Maybe they could go to one single, you know, they had a, one single elder they could go to. But it's, it's definitely a problem. Even, I mean, and that church wasn't a mega, it was a big church, but it was not a mega church um, without this kind of social media platform. But you get to that level, it even magnifies how hard authenticity is. I think um, it just goes hand in hand with another problem, which is consumerism in our culture. Because you get a lot of people that want to help people, but maybe go into ministry. They love God. They love His mission, and they want you know that they have good motives going into it. And then you have a lot of people show that that arrive at church to get something and to receive, and they have these expectations because that's a big part of our our culture, mm-hmm. and it just creates this vicious cycle where the people that give really good stuff to people that are wanting to get good stuff, they get celebrity status, and that creates power. And so I, I think both of those things are part of the brokenness that is, is in the system. Yeah, John. Um, worked in there for 12 years, and the, this, the phrase used over and over and over again is, is faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Relate, rebirth. And I'm like, okay, I get that. That's really important. But then I keep those brochure from the uh, Cambridge Declaration, which talked about the five souls, which I had never heard 25 years in Christ. 25 years, many times, first of us talk, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by subscription to glory of God alone. I hadn't heard glory of God alone, which back to what you talked about here previously. And, and, and so, if, and so I would finally select the Christian to a sentence. Finally, I have preached in that church eight hours on that sentence, and there's 20 more hours I can preach on that sentence alone. But if we all thought it's all that glory of God alone, is, it, it, and Steve appealed that back and saw that, then there'd be less of this puffed-upness, yeah. less of this, I did it all, and God showed me this great revelation, it's all me, me, me. Yeah. You know, if we saw that it's all free glory of God alone, which is not the preacher, not the church, not the denomination, not the technology, God alone. Right. Good, thank you. Yes? Um, you know, kind of uh, along the line of consumerism or, or 
uplifting leaders up. Uh, we, uh, we don't want to buy into the hard stuff. We don't want to buy into the, uh, the hard feelings that are taboo. Um, we really need people to be okay. We need people to be happy. Um, you know, I mean, we have a hard time letting people be sad, let alone angry. Um, people are sad, and, you know, we just can't help but say, you know, God's got a plan, and, you know, all these petty things, trying to, like, make it not sad anymore. Um, and so, you know, that just feeds into um, leadership especially, uh, not being able to be authentic and, and really live life with people that want to Yeah. That just makes me think of another instance I know of a local church I know well. One of the staff members is um, has gotten a divorce or is in the process of getting a divorce. And yet, they've not even made that public. They will not allow that to become public because, for whatever reason, he can't even you know, be authentic with people and, and have that shared with his community of faith because it's not... The way we do things. What else? Anything else? Well, we love success, and we want everything. We want our leader, the leaders, to be successful. We want our church to be successful. We want our gathering to be successful. So it has to be positive. Uh, we always, you know, we used to joke about it in the '90s. You know, everybody wants praise worship. Does anyone say anything about lament worship? Yeah. Uh, you know. But yet, there's more lament in the Bible than there is praise. Right. Uh, so it's just—it's crazy. Yes. Yeah, how you define success mm-hmm. culturally, which you know we're all part of the culture. So I mean, it's you have to fight that. Um, but certainly, Paul, I think, would say, you know, there's a lot of there's just countercultural aspects to all of this. Yeah. That's the huge question you just said. How do you find success? Because success is defined as having having a two-car garage and a family vacation and the designer jeans and, uh, you know, and, and all of the stuff out here that, and, and happiness, then you've got to go for it. Or is it holiness? Is marriage for happiness or for holiness? You know, if you look at the Bible, I don't see a lot of happiness orientation. I see a lot of holiness and righteousness and service and humility and self-discipline. I see a lot of that. I don't see a lot of happiness. The prosperity doctor people can do a lot of really careful fishing and squeezing and squishing to, to make it, yeah. to make the Bible look like right. it was written in America. Right. 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 Not, cl- not even close. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think about implications of this text for for me as a leader and for, for all of us to lead. Um uh, I mean, I think one implication is that those of us who lead have to lead confessionally. So we have, we have to lead authentically. And I'll just say, honestly, that's uh, um, that's way easier to say than it is to do. It takes a tremendous amount of courage, like Terry was saying, to, to be open about your brokenness as a leader. Uh, and that's different than, like... I'm really sensitive to like the the public world and storyline. It's not my therapy room, but on the other on the other hand, 
Um, you all are my spiritual family, and I need to be honest with you about who I am and where I'm at. Um, I think another thing that really helps is the um, distributed leadership, uh, where we share with each other, and there's not a personality. There, there are teams. Right. Um, I think that's really big. I also want to pull, pull, I think it's an overreaction, though, to say that leadership is meaningless or to say that it's worthless or useless. I think uh, Paul isn't saying that. Paul is saying we are servants. Um, Jesus, Jesus used the same word for himself. Like, um, there is a place for leadership. The answer is not no leaders because leadership is worthless. But I think it's, it's leadership as servanthood that's confessional and that is shared to, to cut against ego. Yeah. Yeah. I think about um, connected to that, the significance of the shared part, um, because I don't, at the end of the day, I don't trust my discernment alone that how I understand to glorify God is actually glorifying God and not some expression of a deeper pathology mm-hmm. that I'm unaware. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why community is so important, but also why it's really, really hard um, to discern together what God might be up to, the way in which we might be following God. Necessitates other people call me, and I call others, and we call each other mm-hmm. to the ways in which the sort of hidden pathologies are being expressed, mm-hmm. and we're saying this is from God. Yeah, um, and that's really, really hard. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Anybody else? Well, let me do... Yeah, John. Three words. Which is about community. The importance of Bible reports video. The video shows the importance of accountability. And you said that too. I mean, if you brought in the accountability community, then, then that's the antidote that keeps the the, uh, the, the the dude on the pedestal from, from having to, you know, not admit that he's ever coughed. He's ever... I mean, yeah. it makes you procrastinate, you know. It's like, wow. Much like you're depressed. Right. You know, procrastinating. Good. But he's my leader. He's, yes. on, he's on the pedestal, you know. He has a halo. Right. Good. Well, let me just end with, I, I have... Uh, four kind of summary statement thoughts that I had. I think most has kind of come out from what we said, but um, as it relates to storyline in particular, uh, I think we need to continue to learn from leading Christian voices. To your point, we do have leaders. There are people to listen to who, who have things to say to us, but do so with discernment and with open minds without idolizing any one person as having all the answers. I think we need to continue to seek the formation of community over individualism. Like Paul said, God's dwelling place is in here in the community and faithfulness is found as being a part of the community. I think we need to continue to seek faithfulness over success as it's defined by the culture of celebrity. Attendance and buildings and contributions, the ABCs, people say, of church growth, attendance, buildings, contributions, are not the most appropriate measures of success. And I think we need to continue to work from a model of shared leadership and participation. Charles, you said this in a sermon a few weeks ago, um, that everybody gets to play. And that's a phrase that's kind of that's clicked with me. 
um, meaning all of us in the body of Christ at Storyline participate in the life of the community. I mean, and do you realize how rare it is for church leaders to share the pulpit, you know, and share leadership? I mean, most church planters or those who go into preaching, they want the microphone every single week. Um, and so what we have here is a is a blessing. I will, and I would just say, let's live into that model, continue to live into that model. And, and um, thank you. Uh, finally, let me just end with uh, Paul's words at the end of the text today in, in chapter three. So don't boast about following a particular human leader for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Amen.